I'm Alka Kurian, host of South Asian Films and Books. I'm also a faculty at the University of Washington, Bothell, teaching film, literature, gender, and human rights. In South Asian Films and Books, I'm going to look at how South Asian writers and filmmakers explore some of the major issues and help us make sense of the world that we inhabit. From politics to culture, each episode looks at a topic that impacts and shapes the lives of people living in South Asia and its diasporas. This is South Asian Films and Books, an original podcast broadcast from Seattle. Subscribe to South Asian Films and Books as soon as possible so you don't miss a single episode. I'll be talking today with four highly accomplished and widely published US-based South Asian scholars, professors, creative writers and performance artists who contributed to the June 2022 special double issue of the Journal of International Women's Studies and Wagadu, a transnational journal of women's and gender studies with a special focus on South Asian feminisms and youth activism. I have with me here Dr. Fauzi Afsal Khan, Professor of English, University Distinguished and Fulbright Scholar and former Director of Gender, Sexuality and Women's Studies at Montclair State University, who's talking to us from New Jersey. Dr. Shobha Shardh Rajgopal, Professor of Gender and Race Relations, Communication and International Studies at Westfield State University, who joins us from Massachusetts. Dr. Pramila Venkateshwaran, Poet Laureate of Suffolk County, President of the Now Chapter of Long Island and Professor of Creative Writing at Nassau Community College, who's zooming in from Long Island, New York. And Dr. Shrirekha Pillai Subramanian, Associate Dean and Professor of Humanities, College of Human Sciences and Humanities, University of Houston, Clear Lake, who's speaking from her office in Houston, Texas. It gives me so much pleasure to talk to you. Welcome to the show. I'd like to start the conversation with Dr. Afsal Khan, who was one of the co-editors of this special issue. Talk to us about how it all began. Thank you, Dr. Alka Kurian. I'm just so pleased to be on your show today and with the other three marvelous contributors to this special issue. All five of us have known each other for a long time, and it was really great that you were all able to contribute to this special issue on South Asian feminisms and youth activism in South Asia. And it all got started with an invitation to me from another feminist who works in the global north, but with great focus and solidarity building with women feminists who are located either in the global south or working on the global south. And her name is Diana Fox. She is the founding editor of the Journal of International Women's Studies. She teaches at Bridgeport. She's an anthropologist. And currently, she's working at the University of the West Indies in Jamaica. I was very pleased to receive that invitation. It was going to be a lot of work to compile this special issue, which was going to be published simultaneously with her journal and also Wagadu, as you mentioned. And she reached out, along with the editor of Wagadu, to other feminists who are in the earlier stages of their careers, also working at different universities, one of them actually located in India. And we compiled this international team of activist scholars to brainstorm and to put together the CFP and then to manage the outreach and invite and solicit papers, etc. And then put this whole issue together, which is really how it all got started. And I was very pleased to make the acquaintance of these other feminist scholars and activists in a way to mentor them because most of them were junior faculty at various institutions. 
we started with this very broad-based idea to include material and contributions from feminist activists and scholars and youth activists working in youth feminist movements throughout major countries of South Asia. But because of limited resources and time and the fact that, you know, it's very difficult to find and locate and know people who are working in some of the less powerful countries of South Asia. For example, even Bangladesh and Sri Lanka, where there is a lot of work, good work being done, we had a very hard time finding contributors, those that I knew or we knew just were busy with other projects. And it was hard to find, you know, newer voices. And especially Nepal was very, very difficult. We did get a few pieces, but they really were not quite suitable for the theme or weren't written very well. We would have had to do a lot of mentoring, which unfortunately we did not have the resources to do to get some of those pieces up to par. I was myself particularly keen to get something from Kashmir, but that also did not work out. So those were some of the disappointing obstacles, but I think we learned from them. And I think next time around, there is something like this we can start earlier. And I also, it points to the need to really, really, really develop a roster of scholars and people you can reach out from those countries or people working on those countries and issues of concern to us. And so that was definitely a gap. The issue ended up getting pieces mostly by scholars and activists working either in India, from India, or about India. So we decided to call it an issue with a focus on India. And of course, because I am myself originally from Pakistan and most of my work is in Pakistan, and uh, I know people who work on feminist issues there, I was able to draw on some of those connections and get these two strong pieces from and about Pakistan and Pakistani feminism. And so I'm pleased that I was able to do that. So that is how the issue as a whole took shape. But the pieces we did get and what we have are absolutely fabulous and brilliant. And I can talk about some of the results a little bit later because I think it's had a huge impact, especially being open source journals, which means that a lot of this material is freely accessible, particularly to those in the global south. That's a big plus. They don't have to pay for this. And the downloads have been quite impressive, the number of downloads. Talk to us about what you mean by queer optics that you refer to in your introduction to the special issue. Queer optics essentially is a decolonial enterprise. We're all post-colonial scholars with a great interest in decolonizing narratives and decolonizing theoretical and practical work going on in the global south and particularly our countries. We wanted to add the idea of queer optics because what that does then, you see, is that it's not simply a question of looking at sexuality and queer sexuality, but once you have a queer gaze or a queer optic, which is something that this post-colonial scholar Gayatri Gopinath popularized or introduced in her latest book on queer aesthetics of the diaspora. And we borrowed that term from her because she uses it and we aim to use it as a way of allowing us to, you know, look at narratives of nation, gender, class, sexuality, ethnicity, religion, and so on through a lens which can be called a queer lens, a queer optic. 
And so that helps us to denormativize those discourses. And that really is the need of the day as we move into the second quarter of the 21st century, where decolonizing has taken on new urgency and different shapes, right? And we are attending to things that, you know, maybe we weren't attending to so carefully in the earlier part of, you know, the last century, let's say. Yes, indeed. Dr. Rajakopal, in your article, Fiery Sparks of Change, a comparison between first-wave feminists of India and the United States, you talk about the gaps between women's perspectives on nation-building, for example, Indian women contributing to the Indian Constitution versus no women contributing to the American Declaration of Independence. To what extent does this gap relate to historical context, especially considering that each document was created in entirely different centuries. Thank you so much, uh, Dr. Kurian. It's such a pleasure to be on your podcast. I wrote this article impelled by an exasperation about the Orientalist manner in which women's rights and feminisms of India continue to be covered by both the Western media and academia. And I wanted my article to be accessible to uh, students and lay folk, even outside the hallowed halls of academia. I shared this research, in fact, on my campus last month, and it aroused a lot of interest among my students and faculty as well. But I wondered, why do we not learn about the contributions of Indian women, that is, to the Constitution, etc., of India? Why do we not learn this in our schools and colleges even today? Because I never learned it. I don't know if any of you did, but I did not learn it even though I went to school and college undergrad in India. In my article also, I deconstruct the rationale behind the mission civilisatrice or civilizing mission, the ostensible liberation of the native woman and nation from uh, the barbaric violence perpetrated by the native man, which Spivak has referred to. My research involves the unearthing, actually, of a radical and intersectional and revolutionary Indian feminism that was a two-pronged attack on both the imperialist mission of the West and its own native heteropatriarchy. I found it fascinating that there were not just one or two women involved with drafting the Indian constitution back in the 1940s, but 15 to be precise. And they were a very, very diverse group of women from princesses like Rajkumari Amrit Kaur to middle-class women like Amu Swaminathan to working-class women and the first Dalit to be elected to the Constitution Assembly in 1946, namely Dakshayani Velayudhan, who was from my home state of Kerala, and a Muslim woman, the only Muslim woman member, in fact, Begum Aijaz Rasul, who went on to become the Minister for Social Welfare and Minorities. Sarojini Naidu, too, the great poet Sarojini Naidu, who was appointed president of the leading political party, the Congress, in 1929. And Vijay Lakshmi Pandit, the first woman to be elected president of the UN General Assembly in 1953. I think it's very important to mention that these women occupied key positions representing their country at a time from women in the West were struggling to be heard in the public sphere, let alone become governors of state and representatives of their nation abroad. But of course, the Indian women's struggle was very much a part of the nationalist struggle for independence, as Sri Lankan theorist Kumari Jayavardhane discusses in her important book on third world feminisms. Why do you consider Dalit feminism as having started in the first wave in India? This is something I discovered fairly recently, and I was dumbfounded. And I discovered this through the work of the great Dalit scholar, Sharmila Rege. 
a lot of people, in fact, whether it be in India or in the West, are unaware, too, of this fact that Dalit feminism is not a recent phenomenon, but had started as early as the first wave. However, it is curious that even those of us who grew up in India did not learn in our schools and colleges the significance of the date 25th December 1927. In fact, it is commemorated in Dalit feminist circles as Indian Women's Liberation Day, as that was the date when Dr. Ambedkar, along with numerous followers, hundreds of followers, in fact, gathered at Mahad in Maharashtra and burned a copy of the Manusmriti. Sharmila Rege has discussed this in her book, The Madness of Manu. In fact, the Dalit women scholars emphasize Brahminical hegemony as the chief cause of the enslavement of women and its legitimizing force. And uh, Periyar, the great activist from Tamil Nadu, has also attested this point. Hence, burning this document is an important symbolic act aimed at ending the interlinked slavery of women and Dalits. So this is why I would say that Dalit feminism started as early as the first wave. The success that the first wave of Indian feminism achieved in cultivating a diverse set of voices to achieve gains for various demographics of Indian women certainly contrasts that of American feminism, which sees different types of American women engaging in different types of feminism, for example, black feminism, radical feminism, liberal feminism, etc. Is it a fair comparison to make considering the vastly different histories of each country? Oh, yes, indeed. It's a very, very fair comparison to make because I could say that just as casteism is very much an issue in India to this day, racism continues to be a big problem in the United States to this day, which is why it is very disturbing to me that the first wave of feminism is referred to by many historians, included even from feminist circles, as being mainly a white middle-class group. Whereas that was not the case in reality at all. There were uh, huge numbers of African-American feminists who finally started forming their own groups, even their own suffragist groups, because they felt that they were being dismissed from the mainstream uh, Western feminist representations. And you can see that even in important films that have come out recently. For example, a good film, in fact, made on suffragettes in the United States. But of course, it does not come from the Hollywood stables because Hollywood to date has not made even one film about the suffragette movement. And I find that very, very strange. Coming back to this about the nexus of racism and sexism, those of you who live in New York or nearby areas, you might have noticed a new statue to uh, first wave suffragettes, the feminists, set up in Central Park. First of all, it represents three American feminists. Namely, Susan B. Anthony, Elizabeth Cady Stanton, and Sojourner Truth. But what many are completely unaware of is that Sojourner Truth was not represented in the original design. The sculptor had not included her. And it took a lot of activism and uh, many petitions, I was part of that, to uh, include a representative of uh, women of color from the first wave in that important statue. And that was when the statue of the great abolitionist and suffragette uh, Sojourner Truth was included. So I would say that this is still a problem. And coming back to the film, the only major film which is used in many uh, women's studies classrooms is a film called Iron Jawed Angels, which many of you I'm sure are familiar with. Well, Iron Jawed Angels does have one scene where a feminist of color confronts uh, 
the powerful uh, white feminists who are leading the parade, who the major organizing the parade, the young feminists, uh, Alice Paul and Lucy Burns. And she confronts them with their own racism by permitting the demand of the Southern white feminists to have the black feminists, and there were numerous groups, as I mentioned, of black feminists, to march right in the back. And she confronts them with their racism and forces them to arrive at a compromise to have them march in the middle. But my point is, even in that film about first wave feminism, a recent film, you have only Ida B. Wells represented. And there were, as I said, numerous other feminists, black feminists, who had a very important voice in the first wave, who were not represented. And you see that again in the second wave where you only see people like Gloria Steinem and Betty Friedan, etc., as representing the second wave. Take even the important feminist organization now, which uh, Dr. Venkateshwar, you play a very important role in that, and you will be talking about it. But I would like to mention that uh, even in that important organization, one of the founders was uh, Dr. Polly Murray, who was a Black woman a biracial woman, actually. But to this day, when many people think about now, they think only of the white woman, namely Betty Frieda. So I feel that these issues continue to be a big problem in uh, the representation of the feminist movement and uh, the different waves of feminism in this country. Dr. Afsal Khan, in your article, The Fundamentalist Nexus of Neoliberalism, Rentier Capitalism, religious and secular patriarchies, and South Asian feminist resistance. What, according to you, are some of the factors contributing to the gap in feminist consciousness between imperialist liberal feminists of the West and the oppressive ideologies they engage with? How has mainstream Western feminism ended up serving capitalism and imperialism without most liberal feminists even being aware of this or unwilling to challenge that? Thank you for that question, uh, Dr. Kurian. I think it has a long history, this gap in feminist consciousness. And I think the answer to that is that it lies in the history of colonialism and imperialism. I mean, from day one, right, we know British women, certainly in South Asia, where the British ruled for over 200 years, and the British women who accompanied their husbands and to help them rule were very much part of uh, the same imperialist, colonialist mentality where the women, uh, Indian women that they met, whether Hindu or Muslim or whatever, were seen as, um, you know, less civilized than the white Christian women, never mind the fact that, as Dr. Raj Gopal also pointed out, that many Indian women had been agitating for a very long time for their own rights, and many of them actually were very well-educated. They took part in lots of uh, movements of protest and resistance, but that was not something that I think a lot of the white women living there at that time saw. And then the irony being that back home in Britain or back home in France or whatever other colonial country these women were from, things were really much worse for them. This is something that Zakaria has pointed out in her book in which she talks about this irony that white Western women who thought of themselves as so liberal and out there to liberate the native women were in fact did not have rights to vote, they did not have rights for property, they did not even have the rights to get educated at the same institutions that men did. Uh, but then they went out to the colonies and they thought, oh, well, we are so much better off and let's now start agitating for the liberation of these poor backwards women. So that's that. And unfortunately, that mentality has carried over 
through the whole legacy and the genealogy of Western liberal feminism, which focuses largely on this idea of let's be equal to men, and then we have to ask equal to which men, and it's usually to white upper-class men, right, that these early wave of liberal feminist theory and activism in the West kind of highlighted. And that is why it was critiqued by these other groups that came about. But in any case, that legacy, you see, has colored and continues to color the present, where in the most recent example that we saw of these, uh, you know, the West and now, of course, the U.S. being the leader of the liberal West, you know, going into countries like Afghanistan, right, during the so-called war on terror, and so many countries of the Middle East where women's rights groups like now, for example, the National Organization of Women, and I think it was more the Feminist Majority Foundation, for example, some of their leaders were in cahoots with the first lady at that time, Laura Bush, in saying that, yes, those poor brown women need to be saved from their poor brown men. And that color narrative, right? I mean, Gayatri Spivak called that out. Then, you know, Leila Abu Lohad wrote about, you know, that famous article, you know, where white Western feminists feel that, oh, they have to now save the brown Muslim woman in the case of Afghanistan from those savage or primitive Muslim men, you know, who now occupy the register of the uber savage orientalist men, right? So this orientalist history goes back centuries and it changes a little depending on the time and context, but the underlying narrative and motivations unfortunately stay the same, which is to try and control those countries and to use their riches of labor and of, you know, mineral wealth and all of that to keep the engines of capitalism and Western imperialism going. I find the position of prostitutes as it relates to giving legitimacy to imperialist capitalism and its goals particularly interesting in your article, considering the increase in attempts by younger liberal feminists in the Western world to legitimize sex work as something that's progressive and feminist. How do those arguments by Western women help legitimize women's oppression in the global South, or do they exist separately? That's a great question. Thank you. And it's a complex one. But I can say this, that in the context of my article, the reference to prostitutes and prostitution is made by me when I bring up an essay that I had written earlier and that I reference in this particular essay as well. And that was an essay that I wrote. It was published in Social Text, well, you know, a couple of decades ago, actually, because I was working at the time on Pakistani alternative or Pakistani street theater, as it was then called, alternative uh, theater and the democratic feminist women's rights movement and the imbrication or coming together of these kinds of cultural resistances, right? Cultural and political resistances at that time in Pakistan. And one of the plays that I talk about by a Joka theater group, which is one of the leading theater groups of Pakistan that does theater for social consciousness and focusing on women's rights and minority rights issues through the lens of progressive theater, they had gone and I had accompanied them also when they were trying to mount one of the first plays that was going to be a joint production since the 1971 war uh, between what became Bangladesh and Pakistan. And we, I remember going to Dhaka and to Chittagong and working with theater and women's rights.
rights activists there to put together this joint production. And the point of that play was, uh, one of the themes of it that it was tracing was this influx, right, of women who are sold from countries like Bangladesh into sexual prostitution, then are, you know, under false pretenses, they are poor, their families see them as a drain, and so they are sold off to men who say, oh, we are marrying them. But of course, these men are not marrying them. They bring them across India, in this case, into Pakistan. They are made into prostitutes. And ultimately, the idea is to keep selling them into prostitution. And they go into the UAE and God knows where else from there. And these women in this play end up resisting this forced prostitution. So in this case, it's not a question of choice, right? Which is what I think the a lot of that movement around sex rights and decriminalizing prostitution and all that in the West has been about, right? When a woman wants to be a prostitute, she should have a choice. I mean, she should not be victimized by people thinking that that's an immoral choice. I mean, to some degree, okay, for a certain class of women, maybe, you know, students at some universities who are often, we are told, they a lot of women, they say, oh, we prostitute ourselves because, and it's, we're fine with it because we need to make money to put ourselves through expensive Ivy League schools. Maybe that's fine. And people should have that choice. Why not? But the case in countries of the global south is that most of these women come from backgrounds where they do not have that choice. And then if you superimpose on that this narrative of, well, you know, maybe that's what they want and they can, you know, that's ridiculous. That's not what they want. Right. And also you cannot superimpose, which also happens is, well, let's go and save them. And a lot of, for example, you know, one of the people in this play is a feminist NGO worker who is native or local to that region. And she goes into the homes of these women and says, oh, I can help rescue those women. You know, we have located them. We can get their passports. And the family is like, what are you talking about? They don't even want to hear it because women, whatever they are able to send home as a result of enforced prostitution is money that is badly needed by their families. And so what is missed is that these are deeply structural economic problems and these simple kind of ways of thinking about them just doesn't work. I'd like to talk about RAWA, the Revolutionary Association of Women of Afghanistan, that has repeatedly acknowledged the connections between gender oppression and imperialist American interventions and foreign policy, and RAWA calls for transnational solidarity to fight against imperialism. What are some of the tangible ways that women, particularly women in the U.S., can contribute to that fight? Well, I think, as Rawa said, when the first war on terror broke out and as members of Rawa, the very hasty and ill-planned pullout of U.S. troops from Afghanistan and the terrible conditions that that has unleashed for women in the last year or two, the result of these ill-advised interventions is simply the West needs to leave us alone. That Western intervention is often something that turns out to be worse than even the conditions that exist on the ground, which are patriarchal, which are horrible, which are economically driven, and so on. But once you start intervening, then the local population becomes even more inflamed. All of these so-called you know, donor projects in Afghanistan over the last 20 years they only enriched those who were running those NGO organizations. They did not make their way into improving really 
much in terms of infrastructure or anything for the women. Yes, they were able to get education, which is again been shut down. But to what result? To what end? You see, because again, the bigger picture, the structural picture was not taken into account. So I think one way that feminist organizations in the West and feminists can help in these situations is to insist, as Code Pink does, for example, stop with the war machine. Stop with interfering where you're not wanted. Find out and make connections with uh, women's rights groups, citizens' rights groups in those countries. Ask them what they want, what they need, and extend your solidarity that way instead of backing your government into going in and creating worse chaos on the ground. It's quite interesting to think about how much theory Black feminism has provided over the decades. Do you know to what extent feminists in the Global South engage with Black feminist theory? That's another great question. And honestly, the answer is I don't think as much as is needed. I don't think even Black writers as a whole, never mind Black women writers and Black feminists, are taught as much as they should be in institutions, certainly institutions of higher education in Pakistan. I am not aware that work is being done to the degree or the extent that I think it is necessary. However, in my most recent trip to Pakistan, and I do go quite frequently and I engage with students and I give talks at various institutions there, and I did find that a lot of the younger people now are much more aware, and this is probably a result of open access publishing as well as social media. I think youth now throughout South Asia, and Pakistan is no exception, are becoming much more aware of Black feminism and Black feminist theory and many other things besides, and they are wanting to learn from that. And they are much more open-minded, I feel, towards these other ventures than we were, where I think we were so brainwashed and colonized ourselves that we only studied white feminisms, you know? So I think that the landscape is changing, and I'm very pleased about that, but I think a lot of work still has to be done there. And I think you're absolutely right, and your question is spot on, that I think the work, the contributions, both academic and on the ground, that have been made by various uh, strands and of, of Black feminism and Black feminist theory and practice have been crucial in opening up uh, this terrain that we are talking about today, when we talk about South Asian feminisms and, and youth sort of movements, and we are looking at this work, you know, that is important to challenge dominant narratives of nationalism and dominant narratives of religion, which are themselves quite racist, uh, right, uh, and against minority rights in our countries. I think Black feminist theory makes a crucial contribution in that direction to help us uh, rethink and uh, theorize for ourselves what is going on in our countries and our cultures and make use of that work. We don't have to reinvent the wheel completely. We, of course, have to adapt those insights to the local histories and contexts. That's very important because our situations are obviously not exactly the same. But that is uh, where I think solidarity becomes important. And uh, certainly, I think Dalit feminism in India has been mentioned. And I think a lot of the work now being done in Pakistan from minority communities, that is uh, definitely uh, very much helped along by different varieties of Black feminist activism and theory. We can learn right their experience uh, because it's very intersectional and i think that word intersectional has become quite the buzzword uh, and i think that's a good thing because i think young people are thinking about it 
Dr. Pillai Subramanian, in your article, Looking at the Nation Through a Lover's Eye, and Padma Kumar's film, A Billion Color Story, you talk about the ways in which art can actually bring people together beyond fostering a sense of community and actually produce material and political changes. Talk about that. Dr. Kurian, it is so beautiful to be part of this podcast of yours with our dear friends and comrades, our Desi Tigresses. It is really exciting for me. I want to just continue the points made by Dr. Afzal Khan as she talks about black feminisms. I do want to say that, yes, we need to continue our bridge building from black feminisms to South Asian feminisms, because for me personally, my way in the United States Academy has been lit through black feminisms through and through all the way. They have been my mentors, my teachers, my dearest friends, my sister soldiers in the struggle. It is their vision that has informed my learning from Toni Morrison, whose work informed me and inspired me to do literary studies and make that my life. And of course, teachers uh, at all my various institutions like Thylius Moss, the poet, Safiye Henderson Holmes, the poet, Abin Abusia, uh, professor of literature. Of late, it has taken me some years to transform my 15 years of working in a Texas men's prison to an edited volume that is titled Carceral Liberalism, Feminist Voices Against State Violence. And the foreword is being given by none other than one of the writers of the Combahee River Collective, which is a radical black feminist collective statement written in 1977. And one of the original writers of that manifesto, Demita Frazier, is my mentor, now my teacher, my dear friend. It is her forward, her solidarity, her work with me that really leads the way for me in the times we are in. So yes, black feminism all the way, and we gain power from the room that has been made for us from the struggles of civil rights on, uh, and we need to hold hands with our Black sisters across into the various communities. And yet, art can actually bring people together, and yes, it can actually produce material and political changes. And just as, you know, the virulent ideology of Hindutva and other type of right-wing religious sentiments can create this entire parallel narrative that does not get checked and that spreads across WhatsApp and these other social media messaging platforms, we too can produce art that can be transformative. Look at the comedy produced by Munawar Faruqi from Gujarat in India and Rahman Khan. And look at the rap produced by Arman Yadav. Safran Ablaze is one such um, poem in which uh, Yadav is saying, they told me not to say what I'm saying, but I had to. I'm ashamed to be a man when you know what a fellow man can do. Um, and he's uh, rapping that minorities stay in your place. We're serving fascism on a plate. My country is up in flames and the flames are saffron. This is Yadav's rap. And this is all part of the protest movement that overwhelmed Indian university campuses 
in the wake of these very draconian policies of the National Population Registry and the Citizenships Amendment Act and other such policies that were implemented in December 2019 by Amit Shah in the parliament. And many of the states in India that are not BJP-run states like Kerala and West Bengal and other um, Jharkhand and Chhattisgarh have um, really uh, sort of pushed against these policies. And the poets, the writers, the thinkers, the people taking over the social media, they are instrumental. Uh, look at Varun Grover's uh, really incredible poem, Hum Kagaz Nahi Dikhayenge, Tum Ansu Gas Uchhaloge, Tum Zeher Ki Chai Ubaloge, Hum Pyar Ki Shakkar Gholke Usko Kat Kat Pi Jayenge, Hum Kagaz Nahi Dikhayenge. That is, we will not show our documents. You can spray us with tear gas. You can poison us with your tea. But we will add the sugar of love and we will drink it down. But we will not show our documents. And that is really the resistance against these measures that really were aiming at marginalizing, disenfranchising, and really violently extricating the Muslim minority and other populations from this very plural democracy that is the India many of us knew and grew up in. Uh, you have poets across various spaces inspired by Faiz Ahmed Faiz, who had the great poem Hum Dekhenge, which was really a rallying cry against Ziaul Haq's dictatorship in the 70s. And here you have young poets on Indian campuses inspired by that and writing their own poems pushing against these measures. Take Poojan Sahil's Pachtaoge, Tum students say jo takraoge, bada pachtaoge, bada pachtaoge. That is, you know, taking this famous Bollywood Arijit Singh song and making it into an incredible poem that says that, you know, you can't really break our spirit. You can, you know, crash against students, but you will really regret it. So, yes, art can produce material and political changes. And we, and you, Dr. Korean, with the art that you produce, the art that the artists you interview, and the scholars that uh, you are bringing together on your space, we are all making changes. And we have to have this hope in order to keep going. In referencing the toxicity of nostalgia, do you think the film positions Hindutva as an ideology that was inevitable? So I think the film is replete with nostalgia for a nation that never existed. Nostalgia of the father for an India where entire communities stood together to save their Muslim neighbors during communal riots, right? This is kind of the imaginary of this film by uh, Narasimha Murthy Padmakumar, Billion Color Story uh, that came out in 2016. This is the film that really at the center of my study. Uh, and right alongside this nostalgia for the loss of a Nehruvian secular ideal is also also the greater nostalgia that has funded the rise of Hindutva. This is a nostalgia for a lost and glorious past of oneness where the entire nation was putatively one Rashtra, a pure Hindu nation of endless unity and Advaita, a nostalgia for a fictional Pitrabhumi, fatherland. So perhaps the film ultimately signifies that in narratives where a son sacrifices for the father's cause, loss is the ultimate arbiter of reality. 
So in line with the ideologies of Hindutva that simultaneously valorize and disappear women as quiet corollaries to the patriarch, this film also, it refuses to unsettle hegemonic notions of heteropatriarchal socio-religious family and nation. So it coexists with Hindu-centric mythography. And that is my issue here. What I am getting to is that it's not that Hindutva is inevitable, but what you need along with this kind of feeling of idealism is that idealism needs to be partnered with critical thinking, right? Because otherwise a love of nation can grow perverse. A love of the God, a bhakti movement that can be really radical and border crossing can actually transmogrify into religious supremacy. And anti-imperialist fervor can actually translate into anti-minorityism and a kind of a creation of a religious nation that we are actually witness to in our time today. So what we all need is radical empathy, humility, critical thinking to actually construct the consciousness we need for our times. It's interesting that both the film and the Hindutva ideological logic frame women as secondary to men. This clearly shows how deeply patriarchal ideologies are entrenched into all positions on all the political spectrums. Why is it that filmmakers who might consider themselves to be progressive or are at least trying to convey that they think this is a progressive message seem to fall short when it comes to having a feminist perspective or approach to their work? Is that just not their priority? This is a fantastic question. And yes, so many times in narratives when we see that we have artists and filmmakers who think that they're presenting a progressive message, but it does fall short and actually undoes or moves back the feminist work that has taken place thus far. You know, so here what we are seeing is that the film in many ways falls victim to this tired binary that imagines a false unity in a distant past that could have saved us all. And meanwhile, what we see is that the dead keep dying and the living keep failing at moving forward into light. And what I'm getting to is that in the idealistic longings and foreclosures presented by Padma Kumar's cinema, this film actually seeks a revolution that it fails to imagine. And more specifically, when it comes to the question of women, what we are seeing often, you know, and this is something that you'll see around in popular cultural narratives, that the more you might see women's voices, women are positioned brightly, well-lit, their voices are booming, the feminist positionality is absolutely circumvented, elided, or disappeared. So you'll see females, but not feminism as such. So in many revolutionary struggles, what happens is that the woman's cause is put on the back burner. It is somehow made secondary or females struggling in the movement are told that this is something we can work on later. Let us do the peacemaking work now, the peace building. So often what I notice in narratives that supposedly put women forward, like even in this film, we have a powerful figure of Parvati, the mother, the protagonist, but often the women are disappeared to tell these larger stories. And that comes at a cost. That comes at a cost. And what we see is that in many ways, 
in making room for loving intensely, fiercely, transgressively, this film fails to nod at the histories of contemporary resistance and popular uprisings and youth-led looking to point at the revolutions in making. So what we see is that in refusing to point out the crimes of Hindutva and the multiplicity rising against it, this film fails to legitimize the looking that rights the gaze of right-wing ideologies and at all costs raises the fundamental right to love, pray, and live that the merging of a billion colors can begin to promise. Dr. Venkateshwaran, in your article, Performing Dalit Feminist Youth Activism in South India, Rap, Ghana, and Street Theater, you talk about Isevani alluding to feeling a sense of liberation on stage. How much of that has to do with her pushing back against oppressive ideas of how women are meant to present themselves and having ownership over how she's perceived. Thank you, Dr. Kurian. I'd like to go back to what Dr. Shobha Rajgopal was talking about representation, about the lack of representation of women of color in mainstream American feminism and how this is an ongoing work and that realization also brought to my awareness how much Dalit ideas are not really taken into consideration by Indian feminism. And it's only in the last two decades that we have seen more and more inclusion of caste in talking about gender issues. So that's when I started reading a lot of Dalit feminist poetry particularly in Tamil Nadu. And I was reading these poems in Tamil, which made me more aware of Dalit issues. And I've been writing about these issues. And saw this issue seeking papers on youth activism. I started thinking about Dalit youth and how they were using music, particularly forms of rap and Ghana, in order to be able to express their ideas of Dalit liberation. And as I started looking more into the lyrics and young women who are involved in singing rap and Ghana, I got really interested in how they were actually affected in terms of their own perception of themselves and also perception of other Dalit women in mainstream society. So when I look at Isaiwani and her role in the Castless Collective, which is a group of singers who sing rap and Ghana, and they perform this on stage, I started looking at how she was not exactly only pushing back against gender expectations, but also she was pushing back against caste expectations. Because if you look at the whole history of Dalits in India, especially Dalit women, and it is like, you know, we do not want to see you and we do not want to hear you, right? So for Dalit men and women to come onto the stage and say, you're going to see us, you're going to listen to us, and we are here. And we are going to sing about many of these issues and you're going to listen to these songs. That's a major, major revolutionary thing. So I want to also talk about this question of space. The idea that one can actually put yourself in the social space, which means that you are actually transforming, you know, the way you are seen and you're transforming the space around you. So the Castless Collective is a radical collective that performs all these shows on stage. And this collective enables her to perform her feminism. 
So we also have to remember that the idea of a collective is very important here. So the moment there is a collective and the bond develops among the performers in the collective, it's much easier to actually push your ideas forward. The other point I want to make is about the idea of a heterotopia, and that's something I've talked about in detail in the paper. And the word is used by Michel Foucault, and he's talking about the heterotopia as an outside space, as a marginalized space. But it is a marginalized space where artists actually create their political identity. And so I talk about Dalit rappers occupying this heterotopia in order to be able to create with their imagination rap songs and hip-hop and Ghana and other kinds of music videos in order to bring out that anti-caste message. And I think it's a far more effective tool than anything that I've ever seen. I find the concept of a psychological space where women can envision themselves in a society where women's liberation has been achieved particularly interesting. How can a psychological space translate to material gains for women and help contribute to the destruction of patriarchal institutions? Does it start with providing women a sense of agency? I know that Dr. Subramanian has discussed that in detail in her response. What I'd like to add to what she said is that there is this notion of subjectivity. To be able to express one's subjectivity itself is amazing for a woman who is oppressed, both because of her caste and gender. So self-expression and pressing on with it, despite pushback from naysayers, expands one's psychological space. It establishes the ontology of the subaltern subject. So remember what I said earlier, you know, untouchability means you do not exist. And what the mainstream says is that I can live my life without seeing you. All the social rules are in place that make certain that you are not seen. So that is the attitude of the mainstream. So which means that the Dalit subject has to assert their subjectivity in order to be seen and heard. So I think the notion of the artist being able to be on stage and express their subjectivity means that also the body and the voice are both transformed. And in the transformation of one's body and voice, what happens is one can infer that the space outside them, which is society, would also eventually get transformed. Um, I would say that, you know, this kind of psychological space that is the first breakthrough in the social institution. And once you're literally on stage, you can start thinking about occupying other spaces, other institutions where there is pushback and violence and being able to transform those spaces. In one of her interviews, Isaivani talks about the notion of in Tamar, Timir, which means audacity. And she says that it's very important for women singers, Dalit women, to have that notion of Timir which is a way of walking on stage, at the same time, a way of singing, where assumptions about how one should sing or what should be sung, those should be shoved aside and one has to reach into one's authentic voice and one's authentic message. So in this particular song, for example, she sings, I am sorry, Ayapa. And this is in the context of lack of access 
of temple entry to Dalits. And the lyrics go, I am sorry, Ayapa. And then she says, Bayam kati And which translates as, I am sorry, Ayapa. Old times are no more. Don't use fear to suppress us. So the whole idea of fear and suppression or fear and oppression, and she's challenging that. So that's something that comes through in the lyrics themselves. That is far more effective than somebody else writing about it in theory. It, when it comes out in the song lyrics themselves, that has a great effect on the audience. How important is it for younger people especially to see that a new world is possible? particularly through art, which helps people connect across different demographics. For young people to imagine themselves as part of change-making, are they able to achieve a level of political consciousness that otherwise wouldn't exist or would have been harder to achieve without engaging in political art? For young people to feel agentic, they need to be able to become involved. So rap allows that. It is also performance in a collective as well as it shows subjectivity. Rap is popular among youth. It is transgressive historically. It cuts across boundaries. The themes in Dalit rap influence young people, plus the internet. The internet is a democratizing space. Young people feel the freedom to create and put their creations on the internet and share with the global audience. It is mind-boggling when you think of the seismic changes that are possible from this. And I think Dr. Subramaniam also mentioned this about the access to material right there on YouTube. They are not only performing their art, they're also performing their transgressive act of crossing boundaries and freeing themselves mentally and morally. So yes, there's so much that is possible in terms of getting the message across through the use of the internet. So it is a constant creation of assertion of one's subjectivity. I'd like to conclude by turning to you again, Dr. Afsal Khan. What was the response to this special issue? Do you have any afterthoughts? Well, thank you for that. I just also wanted to say that I have so enjoyed listening to everybody on your podcast and your brilliant questions. I think that this work that you are doing also in your podcast as a way to mark the work that we have done together on this special issue as a collective of our own. As I mentioned earlier, you know, the fact that we have known each other now for more than two decades through professional and personal relationships is adjacent to the aim of this special issue as well, right? To reach across identitarian borders, national borders, disciplinary borders, right? and to come together in this sense of the shared commitment that we all have to build progressive, more democratic, better, juster futures for the world that we live in. And so I was very keen to have all of you be part of this special issue. And I'm so pleased that you all responded to the invitation and wrote such brilliant pieces. Having said that, in terms of a response to the issue, there has been a really an outpouring of, especially from South Asia, of excitement about the issue. And I want to just share a few things. And I want to go back also to echoing things that Dr. Venkateshwaran just mentioned in her responses. And 
Dr. Subramanian in terms of this idea of art as change and the audacity of change and the audacity of hope as President Obama called it, but the audacity of wanting, being able to envision change and that art and the kind of analytic work that we do as academics and analyze this art and bring its messages across to our readers. I think this creates not just the psychological space that Dr. Venkateshwaran was talking about, but actually a space for real on-ground change. And I think that is what many readers of this special issue have attested to and remarked to the editors that they have sent. You know, some people have said, for example, that the different articles in this issue have alerted them to the absolute crucialness of attending to young people and the voices of youth in our countries of origin. I mean, everywhere, but since this was on South Asia, that the idea of keeping that focus on social movement organizing is important because it raises consciousness and it keeps an ongoing pressure on institutions. So we have to attend to that. We have to study. We have to write about it. And that all of you and others in the issue have done. Secondly, that readers were very pleased with the kind of progressive commitment to decoloniality that they found across the board in all of the articles in this special issue and how decoloniality is itself interwoven with feminism as a movement both theoretical and activist, and particularly of this varieties of post-colonial feminism. I think that many contributors to the volume mentioned to the editor, Professor Fox, that they got opportunities for other collaborations that people actually, after reading their pieces, reached out to them and said, oh, this was so wonderful. Why don't you become part of other projects? So we opened these pathways for more work to proceed and for people to, uh, you know, especially junior faculty or graduate students to build their careers. And then I mentioned open access. So the readership of these articles is most of them are between two to 400 downloads just since June. And that's fantastic. And it's still ongoing. You see, it's not like it has stopped. And I mean, if you think about it, most print articles, if they're lucky, you will get like maybe 100 readers in a lifetime. This has surpassed those numbers. And I think some of the highest ones, you know, the ones getting the most hits or downloads, they're up to like 800. I mean, 761, I think, Afia Shermano Zia, who wrote about the Aurat March of Pakistan and looked at it through a critical and analytic lens. I mean, that has 761. Another article about Sita and re-envisioning the Sita myth also in that realm. So it tells you that people really are interested in re-envisioning these histories and creating progressive change, and they are turning to work like we do, which makes you feel good that what we are doing is important. And finally, we are engaged in a process of deconstructing all of these normativities across landscapes of nationalisms and borders and religious extremism and gender apartheid and caste apartheid. And I think this is absolutely fantastic. So radical empathy, absolutely. Love across borders, absolutely. Thank you. Thank you so much, Dr. Fawzi Afsal Khan. 
you summarized all the arguments so beautifully and so succinctly. Thank you so much, Dr. Pramila Venkateshwaran. Thank you, Dr. Shridekha Pile Subramaniam. Thank you very much, Dr. Sharad Rajgopal. It's been a pleasure talking to you. It's been a pleasure collaborating with you and knowing you both at a personal level, at a scholarly level. And here we are, the Desi Tigresses. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. This episode of South Asian Films and Books is developed with the support of the University of Washington Seattle's South Asia Center with funding from the United States Department of Education National Resource Center's program, the student research assistant Anagadhi Risala, the social media coordinator Sanahad Sheikh, the editor Alpna Sood, and the language learning center at the University of Washington Seattle.